Welcome back to True Crime San Antonio. I am just another San Antonio native, and thank you for tuning in. This week's story features the infamous Bear County escapee, dubbed Spider-Man. After the brutal and unfortunate killing of Joey Hernandez, the Juan fugitive will go on to cause more pain. The lives lost and changed because of his actions got us all thinking about the what-ifs. But first, San Antonio, True Crimes, this week. After six years, the capital murder trial began last week in the strangling death of a beloved San Antonio H-E-B employee. R.C. Curtis stood trial this past week for the 2015 slain of Paula Boyd, a 75-year-old H-E-B employee, also known as the Delhi Lady. Jury selection began in the 186th District Court on Monday, November the 1st. The beloved H-E-B employee was found slain in her apartment. The autopsy showed the boy died of blunt force trauma and strangulation. Curtis, who the family confirms is Paula's grandson-in-law, was arrested four months after her death and charged with capital murder. He was caught on surveillance video the day after the murders trying to use her credit card at a gas station, investigators said. He and another man were suspected of using Paula's credit and debit cards after her death. The other man in the case, Frank Hernandez Jr., he was arrested in November of 2015 and charged with felony credit card abuse of the elderly. Curtis is accused of killing Paula Mendez Boyd, his wife's grandmother, known as Paulita. Prosecutors say she was beaten, strangled, robbed, and sexually assaulted. San Antonio police found her nude body during a welfare check at her northwest side apartment on October the 21st, 2015 after numerous co-workers began to worry when she did not show up for her shift at the H-E-B at Days of Olive Road in I-10, where she was a deli specialist. The video interview of Curtis, now 36 years old, was conducted following his arrest and a search of his apartment on Evers Road after authorities concluded he was using Paula's bank card on the days after she was killed. Questioned by prosecutor Steve Spear, San Antonio Police Detective Richard Richardson described the video to the jury, including the moment Curtis was shown pictures taken from the surveillance cameras at a convenience store. Curtis could be seen entering the store and using the automatic telemachine. The detective also showed him bank records and transaction times. The afternoon testimony that day followed that of lead detective Randall Hines, who spent the morning testifying about the investigation and collection of surveillance video and bank records to determine the times that Paula's bank and credit cards were used after her death. Jurors saw numerous photographs and transactions which matched the time frame when the items were purchased. The Bear County District Attorney's Office was not seeking the death penalty in the case, which was being heard by the 187th District Court. Curtis was facing life in prison without the possibility of parole. That was until District Court Judge Stephanie Boyd had to declare a mistrial. A DVD presented from the state showed evidence that the defense didn't have, including cell phone records and evidence of statements that say that there were other people in Paula's apartments on the day of the killing, which could be used to show reasonable doubt. The defense was seeking a dismissal with prejudice, which means Curtis could not be retried for the same charges. On Wednesday, 
Curtis's attorneys were at times loud and voiced their concerns about the state acting inappropriately. He was potentially a day and a half from life without parole, Curtis's attorney Charles Bunk said. That's how close we came. If Mr. Harris hadn't looked in whatever box, I don't know how the disc got into whatever box it did. If he hadn't looked there, they would have absolutely been part of a conviction of a person who they had direct evidence may not be the killer. The decision on the mistrial without prejudice will be given on November the 22nd. Unfortunately, our season finale is next week, so I might just have to drop an update on Instagram for this story alone. Also, police arrested a suspect in the shooting and attempted carjacking at Alamo Quarry Market on the city's north side. A 27-year-old woman was shot in the face in the parking lot of a Whole Foods at the Alamo Quarry Market on the north side during an attempted carjacking, San Antonio police said Tuesday night, November the 2nd. The woman had just left the store and was getting into her car when a man approached her and demanded her vehicle. When she refused, he shot her in the face around 8.45 p.m. The suspected shooter ran away and was caught by police, who arrived minutes later at a nearby movie theater. Police said he still had the gun in his possession. On Wednesday, November the 3rd, police identified the suspect as Julio Cesar Rivera II. He was charged with aggravated robbery. A witness told KSA 12 News in an interview on scene that she was checking out at the grocery store when a woman ran into the store bloodied, screaming, and crying for help. She said she saw her on the ground and the staff was taking care of her. They put a rag on her head. San Antonio police say the woman is alive and was taken to the hospital and was listed in stable condition. The witness said the victim was in serious pain, but she was also coherent. Rivera was also charged Thursday, November the 4th with two new counts of aggravated robbery stemming from an incident on October 19th. Authorities said Rivera robbed a woman and her five-year-old daughter at gunpoint outside of a convenience store on the east side and demanded her car keys before leaving the scene. He's still being held at the Bear County Jail and is now charged with three counts of aggravated robbery from the two incidents. His bond is set at $200,000 according to court records. The woman who was shot survived her encounter and was interviewed by KSI-12's Lee Waldman. I take those moments every day and I'm just like, you're a walking miracle, Alana Castaneda said. The 27-year-old had a new appreciation for life after it was nearly ripped away from her. When Alana walked into the Whole Foods at the Alamo Quarry Market on November 2nd for a sandwich and apple juice like she always does, she got back to her car and she says, as I was putting my bag in the passenger seat, I grabbed my door with my hand. Like, I felt this presence and I looked up and there was a gun to my head, she said. Alana said she got out of the car with her hands raised, trying to comply with the gunman. But 18-year-old Rivera allegedly kept demanding her keys before he hit her on the top of the head with his gun. When she fought back, she got in two punches before he allegedly pulled the trigger. The impact rotated my face so fast, and I just remember that my body just went with me and I collapsed, she described. She got herself up and ran back into the store she had left just moments before, grabbed the woman who made her sandwich and had her call 911. I think the hardest part in the whole situation probably wasn't the actual physical gunshot, it was the holding on to life, she said. She held on for her mom and her dad who stayed by her side through the entire seven-hour surgery at Brook Army Medical Center. 
Doctors had to place two plates in her face to support her eye. The bullet broke bones, damaged her hearing, and was lodged in her neck. This is the hardest thing I've ever been through in my life, but I'm still here and I'm trying to turn that pain into power, Alana said. There will be more surgeries to reconstruct her face, hoping to make it into one that she remembers when she looks in the mirror. But this moment, though haunting, doesn't define Alana. She says, I'm a survivor. I am a survivor. Alana said the kind words and support she's receiving from family, friends, and even complete strangers is what's keeping her going. She's going to need physical therapy in the future, as well as therapy to help her overcome the trauma of that day, for sure. But in her words, I'm still here and I'm alive, and that's all that matters. What a powerful girl. Good luck to you. And lastly, two weeks ago, I told you about a shooting near John Jay High School that had one man shot and another man struck by a fleeing vehicle. That man is now facing a difficult recovery in the hospital after he was nearly killed by that hit and run driver. A broken spinal cord, a broken knee, a fractured wrist, and fractured ribs are just some of the many injuries the 33 year old father, Sergio Enrique Cortez, is facing after he was nearly killed on October the 28th. San Antonio police have not made any arrests on the incident that also injured another person in a separate shooting. Sergio wasn't involved in the shooting that happened on Marbach Road across the street from John Jay High School just before 1 p.m. that day. Sergio says he was running to help after hearing the gunshots. That day we heard gunshots back to back and then we see this kid hit the floor and start screaming for help he said. As soon as I enter the parking lot, that car just comes right towards me, hits me. Surveillance video captured the scene and shown him thrown several yards into the middle of the busy road. As soon as I hit the floor, I tried crawling to the sidewalk to get out of traffic, he said. Several people, including some service members, are seen running to his aid. They just took off and didn't even bother looking back. Nothing, the father said. Sergio remembers the car being a black Malibu or Impala. He is set to undergo more surgeries before he can begin to attempt to walk again. His family has been busy collecting funds for him and the long road ahead. I'm pretty banged up on both sides of my body, he says. He just went through one surgery and says the pain is unbearable. But he also said he doesn't regret putting himself in harm's way to help a stranger. Nobody deserves to be shot out there, left to die, he says. Sergio was surrounded by his family and grateful to be alive. Your life can be taken in the blink of an eye, he said. He hopes someone can help get him justice by helping call police and identify the driver. If you have any information, please call San Antonio Traffic Investigations Detectives at 210-207-7385 if you have any information. I'll also post a number and a link to the video showing the vehicle. I hope the person responsible finds it in their hearts to turn themselves in. But if not, maybe someone will come forward and give Sergio the justice he deserves. Before we get started, I just want to give a quick shout out to all of you who've reached out to me over the past few weeks. It's an honor and a privilege to tell these stories. And I want to make sure that not only do I give all the facts, but that we can also remember who we've lost. Thank you, Sam, for your kind words. I'm sorry you're hurting over the loss of your friend, and I hope you find a way to keep Isaac's memory alive. 
Alright, I think we're good. Here we go, episode 14. Warning, this story depicts accounts of violence, sexual assault, and adult themes that may be found disturbing and unsuitable for some. Listener discretion is advised. Our story today takes us back to August the 4th, 1979. 19-year-old Jose Joey Hernandez and his girlfriend, whose name I am omitting for her privacy, will call her C. Joey and C were parked in a small parking lot in Spada Park on the south side of San Antonio in the early morning hours. As they talked in the car, a 19-year-old George Cordova approached their vehicle and asked Joey for motor oil. Joey replied that he didn't have any and Cordova left. At around 2 a.m., Cordova returned with 18-year-old Manuel Villanueva, who in another report I read was said to be Cordova's cousin. Also accompanying them were two other young men who weren't named due to being underage and the younger brothers of Cordova. It's reported that Cordova asked Joey for a ride to the gas station but Joey spotted a knife in Villanueva's hands, and when Joey reached to start the car, he was struck in the head by a tire iron that Cordova carried. The car door was open, and Cordova and Villanueva started beating Joey. C saw Cordova strike Joey with a tire iron, and Villanueva stab him with a knife. The other two men took C out of the car. Cordova took C's wrist and forced her to run into a wooded area of the park. Along the way, Cordova threatened to do to her what he did to Joey. C was forced to the ground, face down, and Cordova struck the tire iron next to her face and again threatened her. Cordova made her stand up and run further into the woods, where he undressed her, taking her watch and a necklace. Then she was beaten and repeatedly raped by Cordova, Villanueva, and one of the other men. After the attackers departed, C dressed and ran back to the parking lot. There she discovered that the car was gone and Joy was lying dead in a pool of blood. She then ran to nearby Southwest Military about 100 yards north of the park where she flagged down an off-duty police officer. The details of how the arrest came to be were never reported. But according to court documents, both George Cordova and Manuel Villanueva were indicted by a grand jury and warrants were both made for their arrest on August the 22nd, 1979. Both were held on a bond of $25,000. The other two young men were never charged with the crime. It's never been reported why. A friend of Villanueva would later testify that he was with Villanueva a day before the murder on August the 3rd when Cordova came by to pick him up. When Villanueva was arrested, 
he had a bloody knife in his possession. It was believed to be the murder weapon. Villanueva's friend would later testify that Villanueva returned home on August 4th with a bloody shirt. The friend also turned over to police some 8-track tapes, a watch, and an empty wallet which belonged to Joey, and also testified that Villanueva had given him this property. Two cassette boxes, identified as belonging to Joey, were recovered from Villanueva's sister, who had received them from Villanueva. She would also later testify to seeing Cordova and her brother together on August 6. C's watch, which was stolen from her, was also recovered from Villanueva's house. Joey's car was discovered on a street about two and a half blocks from Villanueva's house and approximately the same distance between where Cordova lived. The two men were to be held in the Bear County Jail until their respective court dates, but on September the 26th, 1980, the unthinkable happened. George Cordova escaped his jail cell in the old Bear County Jail through a six-inch gap he had made by breaking out some bars in the Laverde window that had been damaged, according to then-Lieutenant Victor Quintanilla of the Bear County Sheriff's Department. After breaking out of his fourth-story cell, Cordova shimmied down a rope fashioned from bedsheets to a second-floor ledge. He gained access to a catwalk when he jumped to a chain-link fence because he could not reach a stairwell that was being constructed and hopped to the roof of another building and made his way to an adjacent parking lot before disappearing into the darkness and fleeing San Antonio. This act would live in infamy and earn Cordova the nickname Spider-Man. Five months later, all the while a fugitive, Cordova fled to Florida where he unfortunately was picked up in Okeechobee County, Florida on two charges of aggravated sexual assault and sexual battery. Cordova was taken to trial where he would have to face the woman he attacked. The 23-year-old former junior high school teacher testified at his trial she was forced off a road at gunpoint after Cordova fired into her car and ramming her forcing her off the road. He took her to a remote area at gunpoint where she was raped three times. Cordova's fingerprints were found on her glasses and it was admitted into evidence. The day before his rape trial, he was caught trying to saw his way out of jail. Fortunately, he didn't get far. George Cordova was found guilty and sentenced to 30 years in prison. While in prison, he took part in the October 1981 riot at Sumter Correctional Institution in Florida. 16 prisoners and a guard were hurt in the riot. He would later be extradited to San Antonio from Florida for his capital murder trial in November of 1981. Cordova's murder trial for Joey Hernandez began on January the 19th, 1982. After his return to San Antonio, jail and courtroom officials kept close watch on him after he was once found wandering down a jail corridor when he was supposed to be in his jail cell. During his capital murder trial, Bayless found a key to handcuffs in his possession. They believed this was yet another attempt to escape incarceration. How it kept happening, no idea. During the trial, Cordova, who was 19 years old at the time, was said to have already had a long criminal record when he was arrested for the August 4, 1979 murder. After Cordova escaped from jail, he did drugs and may have been pimping, said Richard Langlos, Cordova's attorney. Cordova was out on bail from a robbery charge when he committed the murder of Hernandez, he said. 
Hernandez was just in the wrong place at the wrong time. Lenglos also said that drugs could have influenced Cordova and the other suspects when they committed the crime. Cordova and the others were known to be drug users. The others involved in the murder were Manuel Villanueva and two others who were unidentified. Lenglos said that the two unidentified persons were Cordova's brothers and their names were not mentioned because they were juveniles. As a defense, we were afraid the prosecution might call them to testify, but they never did. C was the key witness for the prosecution, a victim of Cordova's and the girlfriend of Joey Hernandez. Everything Cordova did, including the escape, had an influence on the jury's decision, but the testimony of C was the most influential, Lenglo said. Cordova's attorney's assistant and accomplice, Manuel Villanueva, who was 18 at the time of the killing, actually committed the murder by stabbing Hernandez in the neck, severing his spinal cord. They said Cordova was only identified as beating the victim with a tire iron. The testimony at trial consisted mainly of Joey's girlfriend, C's account of the events on August the 4th. She positively identified Cordova and Villanueva. Other testimony was established about where the car and other property was found. Besides C's identification, the only other evidence connecting Cordova to the criminal activity was Villanueva's friend's testimony about being picked up by Cordova and Villanueva's sister's testimony that she saw them together a couple days after the murder. There was no physical evidence linking Cordova to the crime and no stolen property was found at his house. The medical evidence introduced showed that Joey had wounds on his face that could have been caused by the tire iron. However, the cause of death was a stab wound to the back of the neck. After the close of evidence, Cordova's counsel objected to the failure to include an instruction on the lesser included offense of murder. The trial court overruled the objection. This would come back later. The jury would find Cordova guilty on the charge of capital murder on February the 17, 1982. Specifically, he was charged with intentionally causing the death of Hernandez by stabbing him with a knife while in the course of committing and attempting to commit a robbery of Hernandez. During the punishment phase of the trial, evidence was presented that George Cordova, who completed the sixth grade and worked as a laborer, had other convictions for burglary, robbery, illegal weapons possession, and the sexual assault, and that his first arrest came at the age of 11 for tormenting a police dog. It didn't take long for the jury to bring back their decision, and George Cordova was sentenced to death on February the 23rd, 1982. Even after the death sentence was given, Cordova was tried and sentenced to two years for his jailbreak on April the 20th. If you're wondering why they would even consider trying him, I could only speculate. He was already convicted on a 30-year bid in Florida. So the two-year sentence that could be used on time served doesn't make sense. Plus, we've seen in other cases where charges were dropped once a life sentence was given. But it was a different time back then. As crazy as this story already is, I couldn't believe what I would find as I kept reading. Manuel Villanueva, who was still being held at the old Bear County Jail, would also find a way to escape. On May the 6th, 1982, Villanueva would slip through a narrow gap in a jail window and vanish. His court-appointed lawyers later pleaded that Villanueva was mentally handicapped. Villanueva simply returned to his old neighborhood, about a mile northeast of the jail, 
He remained undetected there until his recapture a month later on June the 8th, 1982. That same year, on December the 7th, the man who lawyers said was mentally handicapped, but who had engineered a successful jail escape, also dodged a possible death sentence by foregoing a trial and agreeing to plead guilty to a reduced murder charge in exchange for a life sentence. The new Bear County Detention Center opened in 1988, and the old building became a parole violator facility. It had a lot to do with the escapes. Cordova's original conviction was thrown out in 1988, when a federal appeals court ruled the jury was given improper instructions. The Texas Court of Criminal Appeals affirmed Cordova's conviction and sentence on his first appeal. But in his second appeal, the Fifth Circuit United States Court of Appeals addressed Cordova's claim that the trial court erred in refusing to instruct on the lesser included offense. The court stated, in determining whether a defendant is entitled to a charge on a lesser included offense, we will consider all the evidence presented at trial. In doing so, the court applies a two-pronged test. The first prong requires that the lesser included offense must be included within the proof necessary to establish the offense charged. Secondly, there must be some evidence in the record that if the defendant is guilty, he is only guilty of the lesser offense. The defendant did not testify, nor did he offer any testimony which might be reasonably raise any lesser included offenses. The fact that the state improving capital murder may also have proved a lesser offense does not entitle a defendant to a charge on the lesser offense. There is no evidence in the record that Cordova was guilty of only a lesser included offense. After exhausting his state court remedies, Cordova brought a habeas action raising a number of issues. The district court denied relief and Cordova's appeals. The court only needed to address the issue of failure to instruct on the lesser included offense of murder. The issue here is whether a rational juror, given all the facts, could have acquitted Cordova of capital murder and convicted him of a lesser included offense. An understanding of the laws of Texas is necessary to answer that issue. Cordova was indicted for and convicted of capital murder. Specifically, the indictment charged that Cordova murdered Hernandez during the course of robbery. The capital murder statute in Texas provides impertinent that a person commits an offense if he commits murder as defined under section 9.02 or adequate cause. Two, the person intentionally commits the murder in the course of committing or attempting to commit robbery. A person commits an offense if he intentionally or knowingly causes the death of an individual. That the murder must have been committed in the course of committing robbery, which means that the conduct causing the death occurred in an attempt to commit during the commission or in immediate flight after the attempt or commission of the robbery. If a robbery is committed as an afterthought and unrelated to the murder, it is simple murder and not capital murder. In other words, as charged by the indictment, the state had to prove that Cordova intentionally caused the death of Joey in an attempt to commit during the commission of or in immediate flight after the attempt or the commission of the robbery. The law of parties applies to the guilt phase of a capital murder trial. The Fifth Circuit Court explained that the laws of parties in Cordova's case, evidence is sufficient to convict the defendant under the law of parties, where he's physically present at the commission of the offense 
and encourages the commission of the offense either by words or other agreement. The agreement, if any, must be before or contemporaneous with the criminal event. To convict someone as a party to an offense, the evidence must show that at the time of the offense the parties were acting together, each doing some part of the execution of the common purpose, in which case they could show that they were all acting for the same purpose. In determining whether the accused participated as a party, the court may look to the events occurring before, during, and after the commission of the offense, and may rely on actions of the defendant which show an understanding and common design to the prohibited act. Finally, the court concluded with reverence to Texas law by noting that murder is a lesser included offense of capital murder. If the jury does not find the defendant guilty of capital murder, it may convict him of murder or any other lesser included offense. In order to prove capital murder, the state had to show that Cordova intentionally murdered Joey while in the course of robbing him, either personally or as a party. The specific issue is whether a rational jury could have found that Cordova murdered Joey, but that it was not in the course of the robbery during this trial. If so, the trial court violated due process by not instructing on the lesser included offense of murder. A brief review of the evidence shows that Cordova and Villanueva approached and attacked Joey Hernandez. Cordova then took C off into the woods where he raped her. Cordova then went off while the other two men raped the girl. He then returned and everybody left. C's own testimony proved that Cordova participated in her rape and the murder of Joey. The proof of Cordova's participation in the robbery of Joey is only circumstantial and far from certain. Joey was definitely robbed. His car was found abandoned and his watch and wallet and other items were given to police by people who said Villanueva gave the items to them. But the sequence of events tends to show that Cordova did not personally commit the robbery of Joey. Cordova was with C most of the time. She testified that when he left her, Cordova went in the direction of the cars on the dirt road. She did not testify that he went in the direction of the parking lot where Joey lay. The state contends that Cordova is guilty as a party. They point to him as the leader of the gang since he did the talking and the fact that he robbed C. The state concludes that this shows he had prior agreement to rob Joey. The court agreed that the jury could infer that Cordova had a prior agreement to rob them. The problem is that the jury could reject that inference, given the lack of evidence of Cordova's personal participation in the robbery, as well as the fact that none of the items were traced to him. A rational jury could conclude that Cordova did not have prior agreement to rob. The state points to the fact that Cordova robbed C to show his larcenous intent. The state also argues that the evidence is conclusive on the robbery because there's no other reason to attack Joey. The appeals court disagreed. The fact that Cordova robbed C simply does not establish conclusively that he had the same intent to rob Joey. Indeed, Cordova let C keep her high school ring, indicating that he was not all that interested in robbery. As for the purpose of the attack, Cordova seemed most interested in the rape. It is at least arguable that his purpose was the rape and not to rob. Given all the evidence, especially Cordova's lack of personal participation in the robbery of Joey and the fact that no stolen property was chased to him, the court concluded that a rational jury could have come to the decision 
that Cordova had no prior agreement. It could then have acquitted Cordova of capital murder and found him guilty of just murder. Since the trial court refused to instruct on the lesser included offense and the evidence would have supported such a verdict, Cordova's due process rights were violated. The judgment of the trial court denying the writ was reversed by the Fifth Circuit Court of Appeals, giving Cordova a chance at a new trial. This trial wouldn't take long though. The trial was held on June 6, 1989, and the sentencing would only take a couple hours to come down. George Cordova would be convicted once again and given a death sentence. He would file appeal after appeal with no success for 10 years. While on death row, he was questioned about the involvement in a stabbing of a fellow inmate. Cordova was found passing a knife to another inmate. He was also found with 11 marijuana cigarettes found in his cell and was caught trying to scale a wall that separates two recreation yards. Guess his Spider-Man days weren't over yet. George Cordova's last day would be February the 10th, 1999. Cordova contended in an interview several years before his execution, I am not guilty of this crime, of the charges brought against me. I know in my heart I did not kill Hernandez. Mary Kay Delavan, one of the Bear County District Attorneys who prosecuted Cordova, was quoted, He's a continuing danger. Obviously, if you're awaiting trial on capital murder and you have the guts to commit a sexual assault, it's going to be 20 years since the crime, Miss Delavan said. It's frustrating. I just hate to have victims hanging around this long, waiting. On the day before, Cordova declined to order a last meal and prison officials said he fasted on the day of his execution, spending part of his days shining the bars of his death row cell. Before he received the lethal dosage, Cordova spoke for nearly 10 minutes in English and Spanish. At times his speech was disjointed, other times it was repetitious. For the pain I have caused you, I am ashamed to even look at your faces, Cordova said. You are great people. To my brothers on death row, Mostly, he apologized for the August 4, 1979 slaying of 19-year-old Joy Hernandez at Espada Park. I'm sorry that your brother had to die, Cordova said, lifting his head from the gurney to which he was strapped and addressing Joey's brother, Alfred, who witnessed the execution. I just don't know what to say to relieve your pain. I'm embarrassed to see your face because I feel your pain. I hope you all take this bad experience and turn it into something positive. He continued, if I see your brother, I'm going to hug him. I don't think I'm worth to be anywhere near where he's at. If he will allow me to be a servant, I'll tie his shoes. I'll do anything. I'm just sorry, he told Hernandez. After Cordova nodded his head to Hernandez, the brother with eyes watering returned the nod. I wish I could die a hundred times for him. I love him. I want to suffer for him because I want to feel all this pain and I ain't afraid of anybody. I did wrong. I have to face up to it. I have to be a man. My tears are for Joe, not for myself, he said. At the end of his statement, Cordova said in Spanish, Ojalá que sofra yo. Me gusta sofrir. Which translated as, I hope I suffer. I like to suffer. 
George Cordova, at the age of 39, was pronounced dead at 6.30 p.m., six minutes after the dose of lethal drugs was released into his arms. After the execution, Alfred Hernandez told reporters that he did not accept Cordova's apology. He said he nodded back to Cordova only to acknowledge what he said. If you had a brother that got murdered, would you accept an apology, he asked. This was too easy. Cordova don't feel pain, and my brother felt pain. Earlier that day, about 15 of Cordova's relatives assembled outside the walls unit where the death chamber is housed to protest the execution. Several family members held up signs pleading with Governor George W. Bush to stop the execution. The U.S. Supreme Court earlier in the week had rejected the most recent appeal filed on Cordova's behalf, leaving only the governor's office in a position to grant a temporary reprieve. I'd like for people to know that two wrongs don't make a right, said Cordova's 33-year-old sister. I want a miracle to happen. I haven't given up hope, she said, insisting that her brother was innocent. Joey's girlfriend, C, was not present at the execution, but earlier she had told an assistant district attorney in Bear County that she had planned on visiting Joey's grave sometime after the execution. Jose Hernandez, or Joey, was only 19 when he was taken from this world. He was born February 23, 1960. It was 1979, and there weren't any background stories on him. I wish I could tell you who he was, instead of what tragically happened to him. Where would Joey be today if given the chance? Who would Joey be? I don't doubt he was loved by his family and friends. His gravestone reads in loving memory of my brother, Joe M. Hernandez. And I wonder if C ever thought about the what ifs. That's our story. I hope you don't ever have to worry about the what ifs. If you're a fan of the show, Show your love with a five-star rating on Apple Podcasts to help us grow. Let me know your thoughts on Instagram at True Crime San Antonio as well. Love to hear from you. This has been True Crime San Antonio, and I am just another San Antonio native, hoping to see us through. Take care.